the issue is that I am speaking as an American. Rudy Giuliani would be the worst face to put forward as representing American values in any sense, in any example, in any place in the world. Okay, now hold on, because we've got some more candidates that we have to talk about here. Welcome to You Are the Guest, a weekly show where you can be the guest and tell people what you and your friends and neighbors think about news events and issues of the day. It's part talk show, part opinion poll, part reality show, and a whole lot of fun. And it's completely dependent upon your participation as a guest. To be considered as a guest for a future show, check out the website at www.youaretheguest.com for details. Now here's your program host, Bill Grady. Greetings from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and welcome to another show, show number 79 of You Are the Guest, the show where we talk to everyday people just like you and me about their lives and about the issues of the day. Our guest today joins us from New York via Miami. Imran Anwar, welcome back to You Are the Guest. Thank you for having me again. Imran, if our audience hasn't heard you before, would you introduce yourself once again? Well, I'm delighted to be on the show. My uh, name is Imran. I am often found on the internet at www.imran.com, which is I-M-R-A-N, Imran.com. And my blog and podcast are available there and on the Apple iTunes Music Store. Or you will see me on CNN or Fox News talking on World Affairs. And you're one of our more popular guests on the show. People comment on Imran, and so you've kind of become a regular here. I appreciate that very much, but I'll let you say that I'm popular rather than myself saying it. Let's go ahead and get right to the issues. First of all, Nancy Pelosi's visit to the Middle East, good, bad, or ugly? I actually personally think that any engagement with uh, the Middle East helping bring about peace in that region is good, even if somebody like uh, Al Sharpton was to go there, or even if uh, Michael Jordan was to go there, or even, for heaven's sakes, if Michael Jackson was to go there, it would be a positive step uh, in the sense that the feeling of the region is that America is not engaged, or that America is engaged only on one side, the Israeli side. So, uh, without going into the politics of uh, Nancy Pelosi versus George W. Bush, uh, any involvement from us is a positive step. So if we were to send Don Imus over there, that would be seen as a positive? As long as he wasn't there talking about towel heads, uh, kissing camels, etc. Has Iran increased its status over the past few months as a threat to stabilization in the Middle East, or has it pretty much just stayed the same? The reputation of Iran has actually gone up in several ways. On the one hand, in the rest of the world that had sympathized with us Americans on September 11, 2001, and who now, I'm sorry to say, despise us or consider us a bigger threat to world peace than North Korea, or Iran for that matter, the reputation of Iran as both a bold, independent country standing up to the U.S. has actually improved. The only positive thing that has come out of that is a little bit of concern that is now rising up among the non-Shiite Sunni majority of the Muslim world, which fears a radical, uh, extreme, fundamentalist Shiite Iranian approach to religion and politics being mixed together. So we are losing ground to Iran, which is a bad thing. However, Iran's sort of getting to uh, 
too much attention in a positive way, which is making our more moderate allies sit up and take notice of it as a potential threat. And that is why it is interesting to see that the rise of Iran has almost brought Israel and Saudi Arabia to the table to talk to each other. So some positive things are coming out, even from a somewhat negative development. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia for a moment. Is selling arms to Saudi Arabia seen as good, bad, or just nothing new? It's been nothing new. We have been selling uh, arms to the Saudis uh, literally to keep the Saudi uh, kingdom in place. Uh, Saudi weapons have never been a threat to any other country. Um, They're both a means of keeping the Saudi royal family happy because they feel that America gives them stuff that they want. Two, it helps them feel a little more secure, even though Iraq had no air force in the first Gulf War, and the Saudis did, yet we saw how the uh, uh, Iraqis basically took over Kuwait and would have taken over Saudi Arabia if we had not stepped in. So uh, the weapons being given to them is not much of a threat to anybody. It's not even much of a deterrent to anybody. The bigger concern is making the Saudi kingdom and the Saudi family feel happy, and two, hoping that some of that washes down or trickles down to the Saudi populace so that the Saudi population thinks, oh, wow, we feel proud because we're one of three or five or seven or 11 countries that can fly F-16s, for example. Where do you think Iran is going with their whole nuclear program? I mean, is it just a big bluff, or are they really planning on building something that they're going to use? Uh, actually, there's then three options. One is, uh, is this a big bluff? Yes. For the most part, this has been leveraged by them in an extremely effective manner to raise their stature on the world stage. Number two, are they interested in making nuclear weapons? Absolutely. Almost every country in the world uh, is interested in it if it can afford it. Thirdly, would they build it and then use it? Yes, they would build it, but once a country has nuclear weapons, the likelihood of it using it against anybody, whether it's even a hated country like Israel for the Iranians, is the, the, pop, uh, the probability of that happening is zero. Uh, the reason I say that is that in general, except for cases like North Korea, where you have a totally authoritarian rule run by one, and I think I have used the word nut job in one of my first interviews with you uh, one or two years ago. Uh, the, the thing is that there you do have a risk of somebody saying, hey, you know, the three of us will run away after pressing the button, and uh, who cares what happens to the world because we're all maniacs here. Um, Iran, Pakistan, even Israel, for example, are less likely to actually use their weapons without knowing that there might be a threat of uh, uh, deterrence. The biggest threat I actually see, uh, the the biggest risk I see of a country using unilateral uh, uh, nuclear weapons is Israel, because as far as Israel is concerned, none of its direct enemies has nuclear capability. So I would not put it past the Israelis to use a nuclear weapon on, say, uh, not the Palestinian territory so much, because that would have a huge uh, repercussion for them with the local fallout, but they could use it on um, Iran, for example, or could have used it on Iraq. Uh, so that I see as a possibility, not not something likely, but it is something that is possible, if not uh, probable. But you, you're saying it's just possible, not probable. Because, exactly. Because if they did, they would really alienate themselves completely from most likely the rest of the world. 
But the Israelis always felt that the rest of the world is out to get them. And as far as alienating themselves from the U.S., which is really their core audience, they couldn't care less if the Australians like them or not or if the Brits like them or not. America is the core audience. America is where the a couple of billion dollars in aid comes from. America is where the Friends of Israel are mostly based. And American audiences can be very easily manipulated by the media. And if you can, quote, educate the market here, oh, the Iranians were a threat to America, for example, uh, they could do it and not even have any fall, fallout. You might have, you know, the occasional editorial about this was extreme, shouldn't have been done, but nobody's going to go bomb is, uh, Israel in response to them nuking somebody. Let's get back to countries who build nuclear weapons, and yet there's that very small, very small potential of them using it. If, if there's such a small possibility of them to actually use it, then why go through the expense and all the trouble of building one? Is that just out of pure ego? Absolutely. It's one of two things. Uh, One is that, remember, the power of nuclear weapons is in their deterrent factor, which is one of the reasons uh, uh, I've always considered India's move a few years ago to detonate nuclear weapons uh, was one of the dumbest uh, foreign policy moves anybody could have made because the Indians had had nuclear capability since 1974. The Pakistanis had been working towards it but had never had a chance to test it. And all this time, there was a psychological advantage that the Indians had. The Indians had an advantage over Pakistan. One, they were ten times the size, so the military was much larger. But they also had nuclear. Once India detonated that second set of bombs uh, uh, when they were testing them, I think, of, you know, about five, six years ago. I forget the, the exact number of years. Uh, and then the Pakistanis detonated their own set of bombs and tested them and improved them. Ironically, what that did was... It brought smaller, untested nuclear Pakistan onto a same equal foothold as the Indians. And so it was a bad uh, military move on India's part, which is why, fortunately, the Indian leadership has then focused on economics, and that's where they're hoping to become the next superpower, where Pakistan, which I, uh, my listeners should know, I was born in Pakistan. I was, I'm an American, but I was born in Pakistan, and I have family there. So, but the fact is that much that Pakistan became a nuclear equivalent to 10 times bigger India, it is on the economic front that India will make Pakistan appear totally insignificant in how it is almost the next China. And in that greater scheme of things, countries like Pakistan will not even matter unless they become part and parcel of that big economic development. So in a, in a good way, the ego of having nuclear weapons and the ego and the nuclear deterrent capability of knowing we are now equal to a bigger enemy is going to go out the door. And the same thing will happen that happened in the European countries where England and Germany or France and Germany, who are nuclear powers who had fought world wars, are now economic partners in one European community. So I think if things are done right, and I'm sorry for the long answer, we can actually see this, the ego of uh, having a nuclear weapon being replaced by the ego of being an economic superpower, and that's what we should look forward to. Iran has this reputation of always escalating whatever they're doing. So let's say that Iran has nuclear weapons. What's the next step for them? I mean, are they just going to just be bullying people and just throwing out rhetoric? Uh, How do they escalate or continue to escalate their rhetoric after they have nuclear weapons? 
Uh, we have to always go back to what the motivations are for a country uh, in everything that they do in uh, foreign policy. So the Iranian nation has always felt that they were a um, an empire, the Persian Empire, the that sort of fell out of favor, much like the Islamic Empire fell out of favor and out of power. Obviously, nobody is expecting the Persian Empire to span you know, from the borders of Russia to the borders of Europe or something. So the question is then that what can the Iranians do? They can increase their influence in the world. They can increase their influence in the region. India is growing economically. Pakistan is a nuclear power. The Saudis are an oil power and a political power. And in all of that, they feel that they are one being squeezed because right now, their arch enemy, the United States, actually is occupying the two countries that are on the left and right of them, Iraq on the one side and Afghanistan on the other. So, and with Pakistan on the U.S. ally role, Iran feels pretty much squeezed. So one is to undo that squeezing that they are going through, but then leapfrog that. Why not become the player in the region? And how better to do it than to threaten anybody like America, not that Tehran will fire a missile to Miami or New York or California, but that the United States troops in Iraq or in Pakistan or in Afghanistan gathered to be a threat to Iran can be dealt with. So ironically, the Iranian moves on the nuclear front are both ego-driven, but more as a deterrent to American intervention or adventurism, as they would call it. Are you familiar with the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses? Uh, Very much, even though I don't have any Joneses next door to me, but I try to keep up. (laughs) Is this kind of what's going on in the Middle East? Is Saudi Arabia trying to keep up with Iran, and Iran's trying to keep up with Saudi Arabia? Is this just a big country version of keeping up with the Joneses? Uh, In some countries, that would be the case. Uh, uh, However, in the case of Iran, they're not trying to keep up with anybody. They are actually, at heart... They are trying to defend themselves from American military uh, incursions or an uh, invasion of Iran by U.S. troops. If they have a nuclear weapon, they know that they cannot risk even firing one or ten missiles at uh, Israel with nuclear tips because they'll be wiped out. They know that by the U.S., if not uh, by the Israelis themselves. What they're trying to do is to have the nuclear weapons to be able to kill 5,000, 10,000 American soldiers who land in Afghanistan or Iraq or head over to the Iranian border. That's what their goal with the nuclear is. So they're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're trying to make sure that the Joneses' uh, dog, so to, so to speak, doesn't jump over their fence. And at the same time, they are trying to build not the same-sized house as the Iraqis or the Afghanis because they're much better off financially than those countries right now. However, they actually want to enjoy the influence that they enjoyed in the good old days. So it's not the Joneses so much as the image or the influence you had when your grandfather was mayor of the town that they're trying to get back to. Just your opinion here. What is the actual likelihood of the U.S. really going and attacking Iran? The, the, it will depend very much on um, how adventurous George W. Bush and his, uh, his, his uh, cabinet want to get. Yeah, but, but let's, let's say that... that over the next year and a half, which is the last part of George Bush's tenure as president of the United States, goes away, 
how likely is it for the next president to go in and go after Iran? The likelihood I see of uh, Bush attacking Iran is 75% versus uh, 25% of not attacking. Really? Uh, absolutely. And now, what makes you say that? Uh, just a study of the way this White House has operated and the way they need to make a success out of some foreign policy or some adventure abroad, and Iraq is definitely not going to be it, blaming it on the Iranians, getting started into a new conflict which will divert attention from the fiasco in Iraq, and maybe giving us a chance to pass off two bad wars to the next president, maybe one way to avoid being held responsible for one particular war. But they're having a hard enough time just managing one. What what makes you think that they're going to actually go out and, you know, a 75% chance of starting another one? Absolutely. Very good question. But that would be if you thought, if you and I think that we have a problem in Iraq, but if you look at every statement this president has made from 2002, 2003, 2004, every year, we are making progress, things are better. We are making progress, stay the course. We are making, not a single speech has he said that we have a problem in Iraq. Well, what's he supposed to say? He's supposed to say we made a mistake and we are going to fix it. Right, and, and I'm not surprised at all that he doesn't say that. <laughs> now, we have people like John McCain saying that, literally on TV, that going to uh, Iraq is just like going for a stroll in the evening to our local marketplace. There was, I forget the name of the uh, uh, Republican senator, I think, or congressman, who from Indiana, who said on TV that a walk to the market in Iraq is no different than going for a shopping stroll in the markets of Indiana. And God help Indiana if that's how things are there. So that's the mindset that people have. It's not just spin, it's actual belief. But see, I don't think the American people at this particular stage would approve a strike on Iran like they did with Iraq. But, Bill, absolutely. But think about this. One, we had a president whose approval rating was 20 or 30 percent. That never stopped him from doing anything. Number two, even with people disapproving of the war, we have a troop surge in progress. Number three, there are still people who believe, who have listened to this president and have said Saddam Hussein was responsible for September 11. Our people are very disengaged from day-to-day -day politics. We have more newspapers and media sources than the rest of the world combined, and one of the least aware and uh, um, media news-educated uh, populations in the world. So our population can be easily manipulated by saying Iran was preparing a threat, etc., etc. Number two, fine, we don't believe him. Only 30% believe him. It doesn't matter. It, it, does, it doesn't stop him. That's why 75% is literally my fear. I'm not saying that in jest. It's my fear that there is a 75% chance this president can start another war and leave us even more at risk than before. Uh, I'll respectfully disagree. I'll switch that around. I'll say it's probably a 75% chance that we don't go to Iran. So I hope that, see, I actually, again, the question is what should happen and what the president would want to do. 75%, I, can, I, I could bet you 75% that he wants to go to war. The fact that some senior heads prevail or the Democrats actually someday get a backbone, which I don't see happening anytime soon, then maybe somebody stands up to him and says, this is Congress's right, and we do not give you that authority, or put the I word, not down I must, but the impeachment word on the table, then maybe we have uh, 
president in control. So I pray to God that you are correct. Don't get me wrong. I pray to God that you are correct and that my calculations are wrong based on what he wants to do. Where does Russia fit into the destabilization of the Middle East? Because I kind of see them as from the outside, from far away, kind of meddling here and meddling there. Do you see that too? Absolutely. Remember that Russia's previous uh, model or the Soviet Union's whole model had been built on meddling and satellite states. Then, obviously, the Soviet Union disintegrated. The Russians were in tatters economically. And then with our foolish adventures in different countries with these wars that drained us, Afghanistan and Iraq became to us what their Afghanistan had been to the Russians. And guess what that did? That gave the Russians an opportunity to rebuild their economic clout, their military clout, and their sense of self-worth. As a result, a in shambles Russia has now turned into a more democratic uh, country, now with Putin trying to play dictator again, but unfortunately now with deeper pockets than the Soviet Union that Ronald Reagan and his friends were able to successfully bankrupt. And this has given Putin an opportunity to be unchecked in Chechnya. He has been throwing his weight around with other countries in the region, from Belarus to uh, several other states in the region, where they have actually cut off gas and oil supplies to neighboring countries in the middle of winter, in Siberian winters, think about it, saying, if you don't do what we want you to do on the foreign policy front, we can squeeze you out. And so Russia has actually been the biggest winner of the last seven years or the last eight years. And I see them not even having to meddle anymore. It is strange and scary that when I was in Pakistan, Muslim Pakistan loved Christian America, which was five, ten thousand miles away, and hated the Russians next door. They're the same white European uh, uh, stock. So what do, what do Pakistani brown-skinned Pakistani Muslims care? It was because the Russians were considered, uh, you know, communist, uh, bears, uh, uh, hell-bent on world domination, and not in a good way. America was the benign sort of superpower that influenced and exported genes and Madonna, but the Russians exported war and uh, domination. Yeah, they were the bad guys. They were the bad guys. Believe it or not, it was shocking to me uh, to hear it. I knew it was an understated uh, uh, feeling, but people openly say, I wish the Russians would do more on the world stage. And that is not a good thing for us. Yeah, is Putin a friend or a foe? Oh, absolutely a foe. Never, never trust. Uh, okay, with due respect to our Russian listeners and friends, uh, never Russian, uh, never trust a uh, Russian government ru- uh, ruler. Number two. Um, and why is that? It's part and parcel of two things. One, he's a KGB man. He he will be like Cheney. Cheney will never be a friend of Russia. Or Bush Senior. Or Bush Senior, absolutely. And Bush Senior could at least say, well, you know, maybe I can look the other way, but not be a backstabber. Cheney would backstab Russia or whoever he doesn't like any time, or maybe shoot him in the face, that's more his style. But on the other hand, the Russians are even more so. The culture is driven less by instant victory than by long-term goals. We are not that long-term driven. Secondly, they do feel the pain of having lost the empire. 
the Muslims feel a loss of an empire from 400 years ago, and they're still smarting. The Persians lost it 500 years ago, and they're still smarting, trying to become nuclear weapons. The Russians lost it when Ro Ronald Reagan was in power. That was not ancient history. I was not a kid. I was actually in university then. So that means the feeling, first off, the helplessness of watching your Soviet Union disintegrate and you becoming the laughing stock of the world, then break, being left as a little sliver of Russia, I mean, it's still a huge country, but nothing compared to the Soviet Union, then being a basket case economically, then having all the corruption and the state enterprises sold to corrupt oligarchs, now the oil revenues, the influence, they're having done some new nuclear weapons development, they are feeling that pride again. Uh, the only difference between the pride they're feeling, for example, and the pride, for example, somebody like Al-Qaeda might be feeling in that they brought down the World Trade Center is Al-Qaeda does not have the deep pockets. They do not have the military. They do not have a country behind them to be able to take us on. They can be a pest. They can be a cockroach. They can be a, a snake, but they cannot be the bear or a rhinoceros that the Soviet Union can be taking us on. But guess what? They are choosing not to do that. They're going to watch as India and China become our economic and military threats in the next 10 years. And I would love to have a conversation with you 10 years to have to defend this or to celebrate my statement that China and India will be military threats to us within 10 years. And at that stage is when Russia will come in through the benign dictator or benign superpower role. That's the role they're playing. And I wouldn't be surprised if Putin tries to stay in power as long as then or have one of his people uh, basically cover for him. North Korea missed another deadline for shutting down its nuclear reactor. So is this another sign that no matter what, you can't trust what North Korea promises? I absolutely agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. I think um, dialogue is always better uh, than not, but you cannot negotiate with some uh, some crazy people. And especially when they keep breaking the promises that they say, okay, we'll do this. And then time after time after time, they just blow it. When you think about it, we attacked Iraq and basically Saddam Hussein for a lot less. And he was uh, sort of breaking the rules, etc., etc. But he was also bluffing, and he did not have any nuclear weapons. We actually had to make up most of that false information to go to war. In this particular case, we have a madman who has actually said he is going to test a weapon. He has shown that he has the capability, etc., and threatened to use it. And we are we're bending over backwards. We are ignoring all the signs that he is not serious. We have released $25 million in funds to him. We are letting China, China that uh, does trade, uh, trade dumping on us, that does unfair trade with us, China that is a huge economic threat to us, China that is a huge military threat to us. We are letting China dictate the rules on what happens in North Korea, and that is the worst possible thing for us to be doing. Let's talk about the next president of the United States, because whoever that is is going to either inherit the continuation of the war in Iraq or they're going to inherit a big problem of trying to settle the peace. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask you your opinions on how you think these presidential hopefuls will fare with Middle Eastern problems and also how you think the Muslims see each of these candidates, okay? Okay. Okay, first one is Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it will be interesting to see Hillary Clinton as uh, an American president because on the one hand, um, Muslims are blamed for or accused of not having uh, 
uh, equal rights for women, yet Muslim countries like Pakistan have had women prime ministers more than once, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, which is not Muslim but uh, has a sizable Muslim majority, uh, minority, as well as the Sri Lankans, all those countries developing and otherwise have had women prime ministers. So it would be interesting not just for the Muslims but for that whole world to see an American uh, president who's a woman. The problem with Hillary Clinton would be that if she does not have a clear mandate from the American people, then her credibility in the Middle East would be uh, much lower. Uh, the other issue would be that she could also come with a surprising element to her uh, benefit, which is Bill Clinton. He still is liked very well around the world. So that could be her trump card, especially in trying to bring about a Middle East uh, peace uh, uh, process to go. He had almost gotten there. So imagine Hillary Clinton staying out of it and sending Bill Clinton as the ambassador at large to solve the Mideast thing. And that gives him, even at his age, something to do for the next five, four, ten years if he wants. So what you're saying is if we elect Hillary, we really get both of them. It's a package, <laughs> one. It's a package deal no matter what. Absolutely. But in this particular case, I may not be a big fan of Hillary Clinton, but what Bill Clinton brings to the table could make it more palatable if that were to happen. So as opposed to Bill Clinton being a liability in my book for her right now, or for us Americans, he might actually be a bonus for us. But that is not, that is not reason enough to elect Hillary. Next candidate, John McCain. John McCain is, um, I respected him when he was a maverick, um, outspoken independent. John McCain is nothing but an old, dangerous, unstable, and unreliable uh, hate monger who will pander to any extreme um, uh, elements, the same ones that he decried a few years ago. I have no respect for him, and a man who could have run for president, or should have been president four years ago or more. Um, so I, in other words, he's playing up to his audience, depending on where he's at. Exactly, and the worst thing is that his audience is an extreme, has an extreme religious agenda that could actually backfire in the long run. Barack Obama. Great candidate, but I think it's a little too early for him to be given the star treatment that he's being given. Ironically, for a Middle East type situation, he might be very popular, especially because uh, in, in those parts of the world, anybody having a slight link to that region and the fact that he grew up in Indonesia for a little bit uh, may actually make him a very effective ambassador. He would make a great Secretary of State or a great Vice President, actually, if he was given the Middle East to deal with. And the American Muslims see him how? The American Muslims see him as any other candidate. To them, he's neither Muslim, nor, nor Christian, nor black, nor white. He's another American candidate. But for the Middle East and for uh, the world, he would make a great vice president. I just think uh, placing uh, this, 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 uh, this mantle of sainthood uh, on him at such an early uh, age with so little experience uh, is, is just not the right thing to do for anybody. But who's doing that? Is that the media? Both, actually. The media are hungry for a, uh, and I will use the word in uh, a very clear context, for somebody with a clean image, not the word the way Senator Joe Biden used it, uh, somebody who has a fresh face, uh, clean image, some fresh ideas, confident, well-spoken person, and hope what our politicians have taken away from us and what the media have then fed us over and over is candidates are ridiculously low quality. There is no hope of having good people in politics. So he brings hope to the process, 
Does that mean he has to be president to be that? I am not so sure. Rudy Giuliani. Uh, he is a, um, he, that man has more uh, crooks surrounding him uh, than Dick Cheney in a meeting with Enron executives. <laughs> and um, I personally think he was a great uh, uh, DA for the, st- the New York City. He did great work there as a mayor. He was uh, uh, good in some things, bad in others. He's, uh, he has a record of being a bigot. He has a record of being a uh, racist. And uh, that would actually be a very bad thing for somebody like him to be elected even vice president or even a cabinet member. I, I personally think he is somebody who has outlived his usefulness in national politics. To this day, he has cashed in on the September 11 tragedy. And I, as somebody who was in New York on September 11, it sickens me. And I think uh, I, I would do everything in my power to make sure he is not elected uh, president, including telling people uh, or the things he did that never made it into the media or have not been in the media in 10 years. How would he be seen in the Middle East? Uh, he has been, uh, he has shown bigotry uh, in his own actions in the Middle East. He happened to be in the Middle East for a personal visit to, uh, not a personal, an official visit as mayor of New York City, which sort of I always wonder about. What business does the mayor of New York have to go to a uh, state of Israel, for example? Or any state, uh, he's not our. You know, like if Pelosi can not should not be going and uh, talking politics in the Middle East. Why is he going? But the bigger concern Bill I had was this: he was there the same week when two Americans were killed in the Middle East. One was a Jewish American who was killed by a Palestinian shooting him, and the other was a Arab Muslim American citizen who was visiting the same region who was shot dead uh, and, uh, by, a, uh, by an Israeli in revenge for the uh, Jewish person's killing. Rudy Giuliani went to the funeral of the Jewish American, but refused even to criticize the killer of the uh, Muslim American. And forget the Muslim part of it. I am a Muslim American. Two Americans died that day. didn't matter if they were Jewish or Muslim. He should have been there at the funeral of both of them. He refused to go to the Muslim one because that's who he is. And he has done similar things with blacks in New York. And he just will be, if he will be the, worst face, the worst face of America to put forward to the Middle East, but also for being the psychophant and the person who surrounds himself with these corrupt people like Bernie Kerik and just his own lack of personal uh, moral character in his personal life while he's, you know, uh, running for... Uh, office for a party that stands for moral values and family values, it just would be a very bad example to set for any country to look at us. So in other words, in a nutshell, you don't like Rudy? I, uh, Giuliani was a great uh, DA. I respect him for having gone after uh, high-powered uh, Wall Street types. I mean, I am, I, you know me, I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> I, I have death threats from my fellow Muslims and Jews and Christians and Hindus and everybody, except my, you know, good friends, the Buddhists. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm working on that. But, but seriously, the issue is that I am speaking as an American. Rudy Giuliani would be the worst face to put forward as representing American values in any sense, in any example, in any place in the world. Okay, now hold on, because we've got some more candidates that we have to talk about here. How about uh, John Edwards? John Edwards, uh, despite his being a, uh, you know, like a trial attorney, etc., the man has uh, matured as a politician. The man uh, 
can be a good president someday. And if he was running, I would seriously consider him. Uh, I'm not Democrat. I'm not Republican. Uh, I would not have voted for John Kerry, uh, but I would have voted for John Edwards had he run for president. Chuck Hagel. Chuck Hagel is actually a, is a, is a very good example of somebody who has great capability and great character, but is not recognized enough, even among our own people in this country. Yeah. So his being a relative unknown abroad may reduce his influence, but again, if you were elected president, I cannot because I was not born in this country, but once you were the president of the United States and you land on U.S. Air Force One, you know what? You have plenty of clout, but it's, I, I think his bigger problem is going to be recognition within the U.S. Bill Richardson. That's an interesting example of somebody who has recognition, brings that minority angle, is, but not an extreme radical sort of uh, concept of uh, an immigrant, you know, foreigner, uh, not foreigner, but uh, an immigrant uh, uh, background. I think he has great experience. He has great experience to be a very good vice president and then to grow into a presidential candidate someday. But as is, he's lacking that certain panache or that certain style that can, uh, well, I mean, we elected George W. Bush, so let's not get too crazy about what I'm saying. But uh, he's missing a little bit of that spark. He's funny, he's witty, but he's, he's lacking that, that magic thing that, that some candidates will bring in that even George W. Bush has when he meets his audience and makes them feel at home. Middle Eastern rating, what would you give him on a scale of 1 to 10? He'd actually be quite high because he has recognition. He has worked on foreign crises. He has gotten, uh, obviously nobody solved the Middle East problem, but he has been in trouble spots before. So he's respected abroad, and he has done good work here even in the U.S. So he would be a good, that's why, again, I would say a great minimum uh, vice president to have or secretary of state and send him abroad. Mitt Romney. Um a waffler from the uh, Northeast, uh, except he's from the wrong party, I guess. Um, he doesn't know what he wants to be, and that will bite him um, because he, you know, he's trying to be everything to everybody, and that will backfire. What candidate does know who they want to be? Um, uh, I would say John Edwards has done a pretty good job with that. Barack Obama has done a pretty good job with that. Chuck Hagel even um, has, has done a pretty good job with that. Um, there are others who have not really announced, uh, you know, what they're going to do. Um, the problem is Hillary Clinton is also one who doesn't really, is, is trying to pander to everybody, and that's, that'll bite her. Um, but right now, I don't think he stands a very good chance, even though he's a very capable man. And with his wealth and his, uh, his own uh, influence, he could do things. Here's another waffler from the Northeast, Chris Dodd. <laughs> Enough said. And then the final candidate, Tommy Thompson from Wisconsin. That, that's a very interesting one because he has been talking about his plan for Iraq. He's done, um, you know, a lot of things. Uh, um, uh, and, but he's also put his foot in the mouth with comments uh, that he had to apologize for to the Jewish people. Um, but he means no harm. I think he needs a little more experience, but I think he has an opportunity to do that. Um, and he could, he could, he could uh, be a, an effective candidate, but he needs to surround himself with more effective and more uh, experienced people, in my humble opinion. Final question. Odds of the Democrats growing a backbone? 7.2%. Uh, that high? <laughs> 7.2, not 72. 
Imran, it's time to play Ask Bill 3. This is where I'm going to turn the microphone over to you, my friend, and you can ask me three questions about anything that you wish. So fire away. Is our country on the right track? Our country right now is right on the fence. And it's just because that we are going to change presidents here. And I think the leadership is just a big toss-up. I'll say that economically, you can look at the Dow Jones and say, well, things are going well there. You can take a look at terrorist attacks on this land and say that hasn't happened in a while. Um, So there are some things positive to look at, but of course... There are a lot of problems, too. So are we on the right track? I can't tell. I can't say that we're not. How's, how's that? I can't say that we're not on the right track. Okay. Um, I, I feel that we are uh, on the fence, but that's because we did have a change um, in Congress. I'm no big fan of Democratic Congresses, but we need to change somewhere, and that had to happen. So from the wrong track, in my, I agree with you, we have moved at least to the fence but we're still teetering on the verge of going back to the wrong track. In the Middle East, we're definitely on the wrong track. Um, on a lot of domestic policies, we haven't uh, really uh, done the right things. Second question for you. Do you think the Republicans learned a lesson from the elections? Uh, or when you see how Karl Rove is still being protected, how the uh, handling of the uh, firing of the, uh, the uh, prosecutors was handled and how even George W. Bush is trying to protect that uh, person I dis- despise, uh, Paul Wilson, uh, who was trying to get his girlfriend a $250,000 salary uh, from the World Bank, and, the jo- and George W. Bush wants that man to stay in power. Has the Republican Party learned a lesson from the election that they lost because of issues like this? Well, it, it appears not. And the one thing that I always look at when I look at the politics of this country, whenever I start rooting for the Republicans, they do something greedy. <laughs> and then when I start rooting for the Democrats, they do something stupid. And so part of the the process is, has the Republicans learned their lessons? I think you have to look, has the Bush administration learned their lessons? And that's a big obvious no. And the the big question is, okay, I know what we have with Bush, and I can suffer through that for another year and a half. I am more worried about who's next than about who's pulling the strings right now. How, how about you? How do you feel about that issue? I don't think they learned a lesson either as a party, as a, as a White House and as a cabinet and as a, as a team. I think they're even more hell-bent on self-destruction, except that you know their self-destruct button also includes your survival and mine. So they're definitely not just on the wrong track. They're actually hell-bent on destroying whatever they can, uh, yet thinking they're on the wrong track, which makes it even more dangerous. The Republicans, the fact that they're not, uh, God bless some of the uh, Republicans who have spoken up and uh, uh, criticized even Bush and uh, the Attorney General uh, asked for his firing, God bless them because uh, they're good Americans, regardless of whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or whatever, that they are doing the right thing. And uh, hopefully it's people like that that we will still be able to find our future leadership forum for both parties. And uh, that's, that's my feeling, but that brings me to a much more important final question I have for you. Fire away. If tomorrow morning you woke up and you found that you were married to Ann Coulter, what would you do? 
Well, if I was married to her, I guess I would be defending my wife no matter what. Because you you make the commitment type of deals. So if if you were married to Ann Coulter, you would do what? Or would it not even get to that point? Oh, I, I would. If I um, woke up and I found out I had been drunk enough to, um, and I don't drink, uh, and I had married that woman, uh, my religion forbids suicide, but that's definitely the first thought that would come to mind. Or you could just drink yourself goofy. Well, right, that's true. So if the religion forbids uh, a suicide and drinking, let's pick up drinking. So who do you think is a good match for Ann Coulter? If we're going to play matchmaker, who do you think would be the perfect match and why? Adolf Hitler, enough said. Wow. Wow. And, and, and why do you think that? Do you think that she is just so much of a threat? To the United States for her opinions, or do you think she's just filled with hate? This is just a hate-filled uh, woman. She's a very smart woman that she uses her hate to market her books, which are usually not that great. She makes some funny points. Uh, you know, she's sort of, in some ways, she's the equivalent of the Al Franken on the on the left. But it's the uh, the poison hate. It's not even. I mean, I can hate incompetent people. I can hate stupid people. I can hate uh, uh, people who are uh, you know stealing from the poor or whatever. I mean, hate is not such a bad thing depending on who you hate or what you hate. But it's the poisonous hate for people and the way she spreads hate that doesn't make her a threat to America, nothing. If, if America were to be threatened by somebody as insignificant and ugly as Ann Coulter and her words, uh, God help us indeed. And who is the liberal counterpart? I would have thought Al Franken, but at least he doesn't, I mean, he, he will use... Offense, etc., but not to this extent. You don't consider Bill Maher as Bill more... Maher? Actually, I have great respect for. Oh, I disagree with him wholeheartedly many, many times, but I respect him. To me, people like Bill Maher, uh, and even some somebody else who I disagree with uh, sometimes, uh, a guy from Saturday Night Live. I forget his name now. Uh, uh, from HBO and his show, uh, but Bill Maher, God bless him, an American hero for saying it as it is. Even when I disagree with him, Bill, keep it going, and I would love to take him on one-to-one in one of his shows. I think hate talk is hate talk, whether you're liberal or conservative. But if it is a a vitriolic attack on some statement or some action of a person as opposed to a blanket hatred of groups or dissemination of hate as opposed to ridicule of ideas, that's where the difference lies. And uh, I would... I have never met Bill, met Bill Maher, but I would uh, do I would do everything in my power uh, to defend his name from being even put in the same sentence as a woman like Ann Coulter. I see it as hate entertainment. <laughs> hate entertainment. Yeah, and isn't that a shocking thing for the media? Exactly. First time I've ever heard of that. Imran, do you want to tell about your podcast and also about your blog site? I would be delighted. I would be really happy to have people visit www.imran.com, and that is I-M-R-A-N, imran.com. My webcast, my podcast, etc. are available there. Feel free to leave comments, and unlike many other websites, even if you disagree with me, uh, as long as it's not Ann Coulter's writings that you are pasting there, I am more than happy to publish any comments that agree, disagree, or take me to task. I would love to see you there. And you and I agree and disagree, and we've had some great conversations, so I appreciate your time. 
Imran, thank you once again for being our guest on You Are the Guest. I am honored. I look forward to it again. And God bless our great country that makes this possible. If you'd like to be a guest on a future show, just go to our website at www.youintheguest.com. Submit your first name, the town where you live, and a short description on why you'd make a good guest. There is no charge for being a guest, and you'll have the opportunity to share what you think and how the news and events from today affect your life. The show's producers will contact you by email if you're chosen for a future show. If you'd like to drop me a comment about this week's show, just email me at billgrady at youaretheguest.com. That takes care of this week's show from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa. I'm Bill Grady. Thanks for listening.